I'm Aaron Reynolds, and you're listening to Explain Like I'm Five on the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interac. For nearly 35 years, Interac has brought the most innovative payment technology to Canada. Today, Interac is building on its track record of innovation in some exciting new ways. Find out how they're changing the game at developer.interac.ca. I like to think that I'm an intelligent guy, but I know more about model railroading than I do about statistical modeling. And that's kind of a problem. So that's why I'm inviting really smart people onto this show to explain things to me like I'm five. Yesterday afternoon, my phone rang. And when I answered it, the voice at the other end asked if I had a few minutes to answer some questions. I hung up on them. But I got to thinking, how does a phone call out of the blue like that get translated into an accurate picture or prediction of the feelings or behavior of the Canadian public. To help me out with this today, I have Nick Nanos, the founder and chief data scientist at Nanos Research. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. So I, I just want to start by just asking you, what do you do? Explain to me what you do. I listen. It's basically as simple as that. You know, uh, for the stuff that we do, uh, a good pollster is basically a researcher. He or she listens to people and tries to make sense of many times it's the insensible when we're looking at public opinion and how to distill that. So, you know, we do public opinion surveys, we do focus groups, we analyze big data, and we kind of roll all those things up, usually to give a snapshot or some sort of insight into what is driving public opinion. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you about, because uh, I, I know you're, you're active on social media, what is it like to be a pollster on social media? Well, if I could, well, two things I'd like to put on the table. So think of it this way. In the last federal election, when, you know, we predicted, like all the pollsters predicted that the Liberals were going to win, I remember uh, you might know Scott Festchuk from from McLean's magazine. I think the night before the election, he posted something like, Nano says that that Justin Trudeau is going to win. If the Liberals don't win, I say we show up at his house with pitchforks. (laughs) So that's what he posted on social media. I don't think – he didn't put my address, so that was good. And to also put it into context, you know, that morning when I would, uh, you know, drop one of my kids off at school, uh, you know, I remember one of my sons going, you know, Dad, you seem a little kind of wound up. And I go – well, today's today. I, today's the day I get my report card. Pollsters get their report card. I said the difference between me and you is that my report card is posted for the whole world to see, right. and they get to either give me a victory lap or ridicule me. So you, know, you have to think of that level of transparent performance, mm-hmm. whether you're good or not, is quite unusual, uh, from, especially from kind of in the professions in the service sector. So. The reality is, is you put your work out there and people know exactly how good or not good that you are. Right. So that actually, that, that brings up a, a, an interesting question. Um, you talked about uh, election results. Uh, what else do people use polling for? What else do you try to create a picture of in polling? So people use polling for a number of things. First of all, for straight up measurement. Mm-hmm. What is the proportion of Canadians that uh, support or oppose a particular initiative? Uh, another one would be to 
understand the complexities of how people feel. So what is driving opinion on a particular public policy issue? Is it people's concerns about their public safety? Is they worried about their jobs and their economic future? Uh, All the way through to organizations that would be developing campaigns in the public domain that would be testing advertising, might be testing messaging, and looking at the best ways to educate and connect with uh, the public. How do you decide what issues you're going to poll? So I'm lucky because I get paid to poll. And this might sound odd, but many of the polls that you see in the public domain are actually not sponsored except by the polling organization. Okay. Because we're the poll store of record for the Globe, CTV, and Bloomberg News, they're the ones that actually direct the content priorities because they have a sense of what's in the news, what might be of interest, what's on the public agenda. And then we work collaboratively with those news organizations to, uh, to pick topics. And then beyond that, there are other types of projects that I would call Nick Vanity Projects. You know, the nice <laughs> thing to be about being a pollster is you get to do whatever you want when you're the boss. Right. You get to work on whatever research projects that you want. So... A number of the Nick Vanity projects includes tracking Canadians and Americans on Canada-U.S. issues that I've done for 13 years. We do a public policy map, which is super uber cool, that maps out the level of importance that people have in different public policy issues and their confidence in finding solutions. So, uh, But the fact of the matter is, is that the, the content that's chosen is client Right. Directed, okay. Except for other kind of, I call it vanity projects that we like to do, just because we like to do them, and they add to public discourse. And so you talked about a couple of clients there. You talked about um, you talked about CTV and the yeah. Globe. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there other are there other clients that you can talk about? Who else? Who else pays for polling, or who else? You know, asks for this information. Well, in uh, in Ottawa, at least, many of the major associations do polling for different things. So for example, we do tracking research for the Canadian Bar Association on how satisfied their members are. Okay. Um, we would do work for the Canadian Council for Public-Private Partnerships, and then at the same time also do work for OPSU, Public Sector uh, uh, Union. So there's a wide, uh, wide diversity. The reality is, is that if you're an association or organization that interacts with the public, you're probably doing polling. Right. It's basically as simple as that. You either want to monitor the public environment right. or you have an agenda that you want to try to kind of advance and you're trying to figure out the best way to engage Canadians on that and politicians. Polls are used a lot to influence politicians because it's actually, it's a lot easier. This might sound weird. It's a lot easier to influence politicians and Canadian citizens because most Canadians have what I'll say value-based views on a lot of the big issues. Okay. Right? When it comes to the legalization of cannabis or when it comes to healthcare or whatever, they have kind of values-based views. Right. Um, Politicians want to hear what people think and they tend to be a little more malleable because what they have to do is reconcile the values of the party that they represent with what Canadians want. Right. So there's a little more wiggle, so to speak, in terms of engaging politicians. Because if you ask a Canadian about privatized health care, why don't we use that? You ask a Canadian about privatized health care, and many people are either for or against it. They're vehemently for or against it. It doesn't matter what a politician says. But uh, a politician wants to hear what people think about that issue and usually tries to reconcile that with what their party wants to achieve. Right. Okay. Um, So how do you gather 
the data? How do you find willing participants for this stuff? It's more and more difficult. Why don't we just say it? The okay. response rates are down. Uh, research is becoming more expensive to do. It's still quite accurate. It's still deadly accurate, but it's just getting more. Uh, it's just it takes more effort to do that. The other the other things that are occurring are fewer homes having landlines. Right. So for us, since 2006, we've had cell line sample as part of our sample, and I think the cell cell. Self-line sample right now is up to 30 or 40% of all the total calls that we make. Okay. So it's changed because no one's going to do a 20-minute interview on their cell phone. Right. And just to put this into context, just to date myself, 30 years ago when I started doing polling, I remember one of the first projects we did that was part of a global study was a study of men's cologne that was the survey, Brace Yourself, 60 minutes long. Oh my Could goodness. you imagine... An interview, 60 minutes long on men's cologne. What kind of men's cologne you use? Have you ever bought men's cologne? Have you ever seen an advertisement where you buy it? Have you received that as a gift? All this kind of stuff. That would never happen now. No one would spend 60 minutes on anything. So questionnaires have become much shorter. uh, And uh, that's been kind of one of the key things that we've learned in the wild, that you've got to have basically an eight to nine minute sweet spot where once you go beyond that, Unless it's someone that's really engaged on an issue, like why don't we use an example? If someone has a, a medical condition and you're doing a survey on that medical condition, or they're a caregiver for someone with a medical right, condition, then they'll be then a they're going to like, yeah, I'll give you 15 minutes, right. Because my mom has Alzheimer's, right? And then they're invested in in making a change or in influencing whatever the exactly. final result of this exactly. is. Okay. And so, is it? It's still then phones primarily by phone. Well, for us, we are ecumenical from a research point of view. So we have our own call center. We have our own online probability panel. Uh, we still do interviews in person. Okay. So, And the only thing that we don't do are the robo-interviews. We don't have confidence in that particular technology. Okay. At least I, sh- I should say consistent confidence. They can be accurate, but uh, we're not – it's – it's not consistently accurate enough for us to be comfortable to use that methodology. What does a robo interview look like compared to like just somebody? Press I, one if oh, you like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Justin yeah. Trudeau and press two if you like Andrew Shear. I remember right. one time my brother, uh, uh, my brother has has a four year old daughter, and uh, he was at the house. It was a Saturday afternoon, <laughs> and his daughter said started running through the house saying, Daddy, 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 I just did a survey. <laughs> and he was like, what? He goes, yeah, who's Ford? And it was kind of oh like, so there was a robo-survey. Right. She answered, yeah. picked up the telephone, and it started listening, and then did the instructions. Right. So, you know, those that methodology can be robust, but you just have to be very cautious. And, you know, the thing is, it takes a really good researcher to make that methodology work. So for us, we've stuck with telephone with good old-fashioned live agents mm-hmm. uh, because if my niece, my four-year-old niece didn't answer the phone, the caller would have said, could we speak to your mommy or daddy? Or yes. is there someone older there in the yeah. house? Uh, or we also do uh, online surveys, which can also be uh, quite effective. Mm. Um, I want to ask about the questions. How important are the questions in a conversation like that? More important than anything else. Yeah. So 
I guess the sad part, when people try to judge many polls, they look at the margin of error, but they don't realize that the margin of error is not indicative of the quality or reliability of a survey. The only thing that a margin of error does is measure the variance of a particular number. So if mm-hmm. you peg a party at 36% and the margin of error is plus or minus three, then you know it's as high as 39% or as low as 33 But it's not an indicator of the reliability of the survey. I spend most of my time uh, not reading reports. I spend most of my time actually designing questions. Okay. Because the questions are the one thing that can have a significant material impact on the results. And we torment ourselves. It's like torture over questions uh, to make sure that they uh, are clear, that they don't use jargon, that the question right. order is, is appropriate uh, so that it doesn't lead respondents. You know, a very famous example was in the, uh, I think it was in the 2004 or 2006 election, there was uh, one of the national pollsters had uh, different results from many of the other pollsters. And uh, I think it was in 2004. And uh, the pollsters are all asking the same questions. Right. Except they might not ask them in the same order. So this particular pollster, when we do a survey, we always ask the ballot question as the first one because there's nothing ahead of it that could influence the results. Right. So we'd say, like, which party are you voting for today? And then we'd say, who's your preference as prime minister? And then we might have a question on who's winning the election or who's running the best campaign. This particular pollster, their first question was, who do you think is winning the campaign? Right? Who do you prefer as prime minister? And then who are you voting for? So think of it. The exact three same questions in a different order actually yielded different results. Because someone in 2004 said, you know what? I think Stephen Harper's probably running the best campaign at, at this particular point in time. And then they say, well, who's the best? Who do you prefer as prime minister? Uh, maybe Stephen Harper? And then who are you voting for? <laughs> but you know, to put that into context, if one out of 20 people are influenced by the order of the questions, that's, oh, a, that's, five, actually a, huge, yeah. that's a 5% variance. Yeah. So if one out of every 20 people just want to answer consistently, that's why when we're talking about question order, we'd always say that the most important question has to be at or very near the very front of a survey before any other content is introduced. How do you get the small group of people that you talk to to properly represent the country at large? So this is where I have blind faith in statistics. Okay. So if you have a truly random sample where everyone in the target population has a chance to be randomly selected. That's basically all you need. But people tend to think bigger's better. Well, right. That's, Talk to more people, so it must it, be more accurate. Yeah, but that's not the case. Interesting. So, what does a successful or accurate poll look like? It captures opinion at a point in time. So, there are certain times when we know, and an election is one of them, where you can empirically see what what public opinion is, like who people are voting for, and to see whether the vote captures that. In the same way, we do tracking for Bloomberg News on the uh, doing an economic sentiment survey every week. And I, you, this might sound crazy, but we check our polling data because our consumer sentiment and our political sentiment are on the same tracking, tracking study. Uh, we measure the reliability of our data against the price of gas, the stock market, the con- and, uh, and the share price index on the TSE because we know that our Bloomberg numbers correlate. They co-vary to that. Interesting. Every week. Okay. And they have for a decade. So huh. I look at – so I can check my data every week against economic 
real economic indicators, and then I have a, a fairly high level of confidence that you in terms of the reliability result. of the total survey because we have the economic data on that survey, and we also have our, our political data on that. I wanted to ask about the difference between the polls and the actual results of the 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 last U.S. election in, in mm-hmm. 2016. Yeah. Um, uh, we talked about it before we started recording, and, and I, I, I found your answer fascinating. The polls were accurate. Actually, yeah. you know what the problem is? The problem in our parliamentary system or in the U.S. system that has electoral college is that it is not a proportional vote. Right. So the Liberals won, for example, thirty nine percent of the thirty nine percent popular support in the last federal election, but they won more than fifty percent of the seats. Those things do not connect. Right. And you know, in the last US election, the pollsters were right. You know, Hillary won on a person by person, American by American count. Hillary Clinton won the election by the proportion that the pollsters predicted. However, the ability to convert that into the Electoral College did not happen. The interesting thing is when you look at the Electoral College in three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, Donald Trump won by a combined total of about seventy to 80,000 voters out of 150 million. Right. Like, if, if that's not randomness... So how do you take those kinds of things into account? Like, is there, is there, some, is there some defense against that kind of outcome? Well, I know what my defense is not to get into predicting who will win the election or predicting seats. Right. And it's hard because people, that's all people want to know. Right. They hey, want to know who's going to win or how who's many Who's going to win? Yeah. Is it a majority or minority? And I always tell them the same thing. I'm really sorry. That's not the game that I'm in. I'm not doing seat projections. I'm here to measure popular support in aggregate form. To sort of wrap this up. What are what does the future look like for polling? Like in the short term, in the long term, what is it? What's going to change for you? What's going to change for the rest of us? So, first of all, polling is exciting. Mm-hmm. It's an exciting business to be in. We're using more machine learning algorithms to do some of the big data analysis. So that's been fun in the shop. So we've been designing and implementing machine learning algorithms in order to analyze really big data sets. So that's fundamentally changing our our business and our team and making it actually a lot more fun than it was in the past because it was mind-numbing. So we have things called open-ended questions right? where people can say whatever they want. Yeah. Well, it is mind-numbing. Like your eyes bleed trying to <laughs> categorize what people say right. in the categories. Like talk about something. So we're using machine learning algorithms to kind of replace uh, a lot of that and uh, have been successful doing that. In the long run, what we're going to see is an industry that changes. It's going to be a hybrid of big data, public opinion data, and actually, that's really the future of understanding public sentiment. It's not all going to be big data, and it's not all going to be public opinion the way it was in the past. We're going to be mixing those things in order to have a very complex understanding of what citizens think of everything from kind of A to Z. Fantastic. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. If people are looking to hear more from you, where can they find you on the internet? www.nanos.co. How's that for short? That's nice and short. That's fantastic. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Many people, myself included, secretly worry that someone could come along and steal their identity. 
According to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, identity theft rates rose by 33% for each of the past three years. It's certainly an interesting topic and one that's top of mind. Download the Interact Digital Identity White Paper at developer.interact.ca. 